Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number 19, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist, and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, we want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Also, as a guide for you, episode one through eight provide important foundational information. And starting with episode nine, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future, with the inner IQ being introduced in episode 12. And we really recommend that you listen to all the inner IQ episodes if you can, because the inner IQ provides parents with an essential framework to help understand and guide their children's healthy development. Now, in this episode, episode number 19, we are going to get an eye-opening look at what is happening today in our schools. And we're going to talk about a number of issues that parents need to be aware of that are critically impacting their children's future. And to give us this crucial inside information, we are delighted to be joined by Joe Clement and Matt Miles, two veteran award-winning teachers and the authors of the must-read book, Screen Schooled. Matt and Joe, welcome to Live Above the Noise. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we'd love to be here. Guys, I think a lot of parents, you know, they hear from their kids what's happening in the schools and they hear at a parent-teacher meeting or something like that. But you guys are veteran teachers. You've been in the classroom for, you know, a long time. I think a lot of parents would really like to hear what is happening in the classrooms and what you think the most important message to convey to parents is. Well, what's happening in classrooms is probably similar to what's happening in, in many homes, which is... Kids are, and and this is, we know we come across as curmudgeonly sometimes, like we're not, we don't blame kids at all. This is, we just, we didn't grow up at a time where we had smartphones and laptops and tablets and so on. But what's going on in the classroom largely is probably what's going on in many homes, which is there's a constant battle about how much technology, you know, kids wanting to be on their, their phone or their tablet or their laptop all the time. Most of that time being for entertainment purposes and the, and the problem really in, in school is that it's ostensibly for educational purposes. There's some game they're supposed to be playing or app they're supposed to be uh, using for a, an educational reason, or there's a, a website, a, a scholarly website they're supposed to go to or whatever. And, and just like happens at home when they're doing their homework and they've got to be online with, you know, to do the, their Google classroom or their, if they've got a flipped classroom or they're, you know, watching somebody lecture or whatever. They have a hard time staying focused and they have a hard time uh, paying attention to what they're supposed to be paying attention to. And, and so we're, I think, I mean, in, at home and at school, we're, we're largely fighting the same battle. And what I feel maybe worst about is that uh, in schools, we're exacerbating the problem at home because in school, we are telling kids, you have to go home and do this, this and this online. You've got an online textbook, you've got a digital Dropbox, 
you've got uh, a Google Classroom you've got to check into or turn assignments into, or you've got to watch this lesson or this lecture or, or do whatever, whatever it is, the kids, are, kids have got to be online and parents are, you know, maybe some parents, many parents are trying to limit or, or, or watch what their kids are doing online. And it becomes increasingly difficult because of the role that schools are playing. And I think that's, that, that's the, that's the big thing to me is that, is that we're, we're all on the same team and it, and it seems like we're all facing the same problems as well. So is that something, you know, I think parents, when kids bring their stuff home and they have to do that, one of the issues is, are they actually even working on those things or are they looking at something else? And I know you guys have talked in some of your work about the fact that uh, a lot of what kids are doing online is entertainment, while the parents or maybe even you guys in the classroom are supposedly thinking that they're doing something that's beneficial to them or some some work that they're doing. Is that a a big issue as well? I will tell you that you know, in my world history class, for example, I would assign kids something like five pages of homework. And it used to be, you know, seven or eight years ago, we'd have, we had a regular textbook. So, you know, kids wouldn't complain about that seven pages of reading and, and three or four questions. Um, you know, after the invention of the smartphone and we started giving kids laptops, we've since moved those textbooks to online. And ever since we've done that, I've had more and more parents complain about the amount of homework I'm giving, mm-hmm. um, saying it was taking their kids two to three hours to do it. And I said, it just, it just can't be. You're doing, you know, three or four, you know, questions and five pages of reading in, in two or three hours. That's just preposterous. And, and um, what's, what's going on, if you look at the research, is that kids aren't, when, when they're, on devices, they're on three or four or five or six, as many as 11 different activities at the same time. And of course, nobody's good at multitasking. And what's going on is it's taking them three or four times as long to do something as simple as read five pages. So that's what we're no, I'm, I'm seeing. I mean, Joe, do you want to Yeah, they, <laughs> again, this is one of those things where it's not, it really isn't the fault of the kid, but just can you imagine being 14 or 15 or, or 10 or whatever. And you've got in your pocket infinite free entertainment. You can, you can, you can watch as many video games as you want. All your friends are online. All the social media is out there. You can watch any movie you want, any TV show you want, all the video games you want, all the pornography you could ever watch. It's all there for free. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to tell you to go watch some video, you know, the, the Federal Reserve today just, uh, you know, announced that they're going to do this, that, or the other with uh, interest rates. You're 14. I mean, it, that we, we're, we're setting kids up for failure when we require as much. And, and we're certainly not saying that things, you know, shouldn't be done online. And, yeah. you know, kids should never be on computers and there should never be phones and blah, blah, blah. We're not saying that. But we really set kids up for failure when so much of their day is you're supposed to be productive online. You're supposed to be productive online. They're 14. They can't, you, can't, you can't fault the kid. Yeah, when we moved our textbooks to online, I said it, it's a lot like, you know, in, I, I was born in the 80s. It, it would be a lot like if you, you took my old history textbook, my teacher told me to go read about Hammurabi's code, and in that textbook, in the cover, you stapled a Playboy, and then you taped <laughs> Game Boy. And you said, go upstairs and do your homework. It would be remarkable if I ever got to him, Robbie's code. Like, it's just preposterous to think that a teenager would do that. And, and, and we're expecting too much of kids yeah. when we give them a 
free reign of a laptop or a device. And, and again, we're not anti-technology. We think technology is wonderful. And the, the greatest thing about technology is also its greatest fault is that it's too dynamic. It's too versatile and it can do anything. And to expect a teenager with prefrontal cortex is still developing prefrontal cortex, um, you know, a lack of executive function. You're expecting them to take that and ignore their biological urges to go do something like read some monotonous stuff about some guy who died 2000 years ago. I think that's just expecting too much. Way too much. And, you know, do parents resist the idea that that their children have an infinite appetite for distraction? And if you combine that with the fact that I think currently there's a 182 cognitive biases, which are basically blind spots. Yeah. So you put those two pieces together and you say, first of all, you're going to be distracted because you're hardwired for that. And secondly, you have all these biases in your brain anyway that are part of being human. And do they get that or have we, have, have you talked about that? <laughs> Folks, you, you got to wake up. This is the way we're wired. And so technology is not a match for that. In the book, we tell a story about this. I, I had this student and he would wear these big headphones, these big noise canceling headphones in the class all the time. Uh, and he'd sit there with them on and I have to take them all. I have to tell him to take it off, you know, three or four times a class. And this was the first week of school. And I remember back to school night, the parents came in and they were, they, they were the first parents in and they were just glean, you know, just wanted to know about how great their kid was doing. And, and I don't, I normally just, you know, I don't know the kids by two weeks, but this kid stuck at, you know, just who does that? And I, I mentioned that to the kids. He's great, but he, you know, he struggles to get on tasks because he wears these giant headphones all the time. And they were just, you know, smiling while shaking their head like, Oh, you know, so-and-so. Yeah. And they were, they said he's, he's reading and he reads books on, on Kindle while listening to a book on tape at the same time while listening to my lecture and they're like, isn't multitasking wonderful? And a lot of parents today think that their kids are multitasking and they're doing three or four things at the same time. And they think it's, you know, something new about this generation. Technology has allowed them to develop this ability to multitask and that they're doing it successfully. In reality, I could see that this kid was always lost. It was exactly the kid who you say, turn to page, you know, five and they'd raise their hand, you know, which page are we on? You know, they're, they're perpetually lost in just conversation. They were doing nothing well. Mm. Um, so I get the impression a lot of parents uh, think their kids are doing quite well with all the different tasks. But uh, I would add to that though, I don't, Matt and I both teach government. One of the famous studies we like to cite and, and they repeat it all the time is that people in America, generally speaking, are happy with their representative to Congress, but they think Congress is terrible. All, you know, Congress in general is bad, but their particular representative is doing a, doing a bang up job. <laughs> and the analogy here is that parents, I think if you talk to parents about this issue in general, most parents would say, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kids are distracted and they use too much technology and they can't look you in the eye and they're always wanting to be on their phone, blah, blah, blah. But not my kid. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. so they want to, they want to, in the same way, they think their own kid is fine, but every other kid is screwed up. And that's one of the blind spots. You know, that's a huge. It, right. And that's right. I was going to relate that to what you were saying about blind spots. They they clearly see the issue, but they cannot at all see the issue with their own children. Or very rarely can they see the issue with their own children. So that whole idea about telling parents the truth, 
that must be difficult. I mean, when parents are not ready to accept the fact that there's a problem with your child, do you find that that's, I guess you're, you're saying that that's a fairly frequent thing. And how do you, how do you deal with that? Uh, you know, if we come up with a really good answer for that, we'll let, we'll let you know. Um, I can tell you that we we all we always mention it when, when there's because when there's a you know a child is struggling in class, either academically or emotionally or whatever. We, you know, we always reach out to the parent, or the parent will reach out if there's something going on at home. And I would say that I mean I don't know this is not scientific in any way, but I won't give a I won't give a number. A vast majority of the time, the use of Phone, computer, tablet, etc., comes up mm-hmm. in conversation. It is always there. It's always at least in the background, if not the main issue. I mean, we, you know, there are times, of course, when you have to call and say, "Hey, your kid won't put his phone away," and or can't get off the laptop, or can't use the laptop appropriately, or whatever. But even when it's not about that specifically, it's always in the background. It's always it's a distraction, or oh, the parent will volunteer. Well, I know that he's in his room on his computer all the time. And well, if you looked at what he's doing and it's a, it's a tough conversation to have because, and again, this isn't something that we want to judge parents on because this is difficult for everybody. We, you know, between us, we have five kids and uh, it's, it's something we all struggle with. But when you start talking about here's what you're doing at home and here's how it's affecting your kid, that, that's a tough message to deliver. And that can sound very judgmental. And so we're we're really struggling with how to talk about it in, in a very neutral way, just sort of present facts. Let me ask you a question, Joe, because our podcast is called Live Above the Noise. Yeah. If you were to ask a parent, how is it that your child can learn, you know, with a digital future that's escalating at an exponential rate, how is it that you think your child will learn how to live above the noise? What do you think they might say? Yeah. I think they might say, it, because here's here's what ed tech companies have sold to principals and principals have sold to communities is that this is how the 21st century is. All of us live in a digital world now. And if you're going to be successful down the road, you got to figure out how to navigate this digital world. And we would, to a certain extent, we'd be on board. Where we depart is that these ed tech salespeople who aren't, by the way, child experts or psychiatrists or psychologists or family therapists or anything else, they're salespeople. And what they tell parents and principals and then principals tell parents is that there are 21st century skills and your kid has to have them. Hmm. And so I don't think parents are so much concerned about how their kids are learning. They just, they feel like, well, my kid's going to be behind if he or she is not on a laptop at school and at home or not using their, their iPad when they're in kindergarten or whatever that, you know, it's great that my kid's getting a leg up. You hear that all the time from parents. Oh, my kid's getting a leg up because, you know, our school system has all these, all these tools. So I don't, I, I don't think parents think very much about, you know, you're talking about, you know, thinking about how we think. I don't think parents think about how their kids think or how their kids learn. I just think they hear, mm-hmm. well, they've got to have these digital tools in order to learn. I'd just like to touch on something, guys, that uh, you have. You have this great article that you've posted, and in it, you go through four myths that are out there. And one of those myths is something you just talked about. You just touched on it, and you said, I'll just quote it. It says, we need kids on devices in school so they can learn 21st century skills. 
So that's the myth. Why isn't that the case? Because as you've just said, you've got parents coming to you saying, hey, an ed tech guy selling technology into school systems that say, oh, these are the 21st century skills and that's what they're going to need. So from your perspective, why is that a myth when parents say that is what they need? They need tech. Why is it a myth? Well, if you start at the root, if you go to businesses and talk to the corporations, what are their employees lacking from this generation? They'll say the same thing. Their kids can't communicate. They don't have leadership skills. They don't have focus. And all the skills that they say that they're looking for, none of them have to do with technology. And in fact, 21st century skills seem to be identical to 20th century skills. They're all human-based. They're not looking for kids to be on Twitter. They're not looking for kids to be on Facebook. If you look at what ed tech is doing in the classroom, it has no translation to the workforce. If you talk about gamified learning, for example, where they're making math accessible to kids by just turning it into like essentially number munchers from you know 20 years ago, they're not making accounting done by word munch or number munchers. They're not gamifying work. So the idea is that there's a huge disconnect from what's being sold as 21st century skills to what's actually being done by ed tech. They're not actually working on the root of the problem. Kids aren't communicating better face-to-face as a result of technology. In fact, they're communicating worse. They're not developing as a result leadership skills because they don't have the requisite communication skills. So we always harp on this idea that human skills are 20th century skills or 19th century skills and that they really haven't changed that much over time. My, I have a daughter who's getting ready to start kindergarten and the school she's going to is very proud of the iPad that they're going to be using in the classroom. And um, the idea that that's going to be useful, like an iPad is going to be useful for her in, you know, in, in 20 years when she's in the workforce, that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And the way Apple developed the interface to begin with, the iOS at the outset, was they watched children look at a computer. When, they, when, the, when the Mac, the original, you know, the, the Apple II or whatever, was just like a box and had a little black and white screen and they, and they had the first mouse attached to it and they, they watched kids, well, ha- what are they expecting? What do they want this thing to do because they, they knew that if we can do what like a five-year-old or a six-year-old would expect this magic box to be able to do, then any adult is going to be able to pick it up in two seconds. And that's what we've got is a whole bunch of apps and, and, and devices that are really easy to figure out. I mean, to fix them is not always easy, of course, but to figure out and to get up and running these days on most devices and most apps is pretty easy. I don't know if you can you know remember trying to program a VCR, but you might as well try and go to the moon. But you know, now if you're trying to program your DVR on your TV, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Most things are, are made to be easy to figure out. So when a kid who hasn't, let's say, been exposed to an iPad or whatever, when they're in elementary school, if that kid somehow has a job in 20 years and they really do need to know how to use an iPad, they're going to figure it out. If they have the true 21st century skills like critical thinking, problem solving, communication, they'll be able to figure out whatever they need to figure out. The device, that's not the skill. And there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing in any sort of 21st century skill that requires training on a device of any kind. It's a really a ridiculous argument. Yeah, and, and, and technology today, is so, like Joe's just saying, so user-friendly, it's designed to be user-friendly. I tell in the book the story about trying to teach kids to do research and just kind of take it for granted kids knew how to use search engines. 
So we go down to the library and, and we're trying to do primary versus secondary research. And, you know, I had the kids pick a topic and, and you know, spent all this time talking about the research itself. And a kid came up to me and said, you know, I know how to use Google. I can't find any primary sources about my topic. I hear this all the time. You know, kids say it all the time. There's no primary source about my topic. I finally said, what, what is your topic? And the kid goes, the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just occurred to me at that moment that it's not a matter of opening up a Google and, and typing into it or any type of search engine, an academic search. He's lacking the requisite critical thinking skills. He doesn't critically think. And he doesn't have that, what do I search for when I'm looking for this? What can I analyze and interpret? Uh, what a primary source is versus a secondary source. So that kind of just shows you when you have a foundation built in sand, you just assume kids know this stuff because technology has allowed them that you're building on false notions. Critical thinking you could do without a, a laptop. You don't need Google to do it. And Google is so intuitive that anybody can open up a Google browser and type a question into it. But how do you get to that question? How do you get to that search? Mm-hmm. That's what teachers need to be teaching. No program a school can, and this is the other thing we talk about too. You know, schools are buying, school systems are buying thousands of laptops and software suites at a time. They're going for whatever's on discount. And what's on discount is stuff that's already outdated at the point they buy it. Yeah. So if you're buying stuff for, like Joe just said, a kindergartner, it's preposterous to think that it's going to be in use 14 years from now, but programs are designed to be user friendly. And it's the critical thinking skills that allows them adapt from one program to the next. But what is now being assumed is if I can Google a fact, then why retain that information? Why know that this person did this on this date? Why know that this is what the First Amendment says? Why know this equation? Yeah. When I can just Google that or I can just look at it, I can just immediate technology can provide that for me. So what we see a lot now that's popular is... Try to get to the higher levels, right? Let's let's get kids to critically think about stuff. Let's give them an article. Let's give them a, a YouTube video and they get a debate. Let's immediately get into that, those higher levels of critical thinking and evaluation and synthesis. Let's get them to that without that actual knowledge. And what we're seeing is kids are trying to develop arguments. They're trying to, to develop synthesis and evaluation, but they can't because they don't actually retain that knowledge. We're trying to get them to think critically about knowledge that they don't actually have. Mm. There's a big difference between looking up a fact and then knowing that fact, right? I can look that fact up and tell you that fact on my from you know from my phone, but that doesn't mean I know that mm. fact. I, I'm not actually building off, and that's the problem. Is a lot of these people don't understand how learning actually takes place. Factual retention has become actually very not in vogue, right. and, and people are like, "Well, why learn it if you can just Google it?" Well. Because you need that in your brain so that you can then connect new knowledge to it. And, and, and you can actually think about it critically later and rebuild upon it. it. Sounds like you got the fact, but you're not applying it, which is a preliminary step to analysis and synthesis, is application. So is application falling out too, where I know this, but I don't have any way to apply it to my own life? Yeah, if you can't apply something you don't know what it is. I mean, like Matt just said, is spot on. Here's the here's the height of irony in this part of the world is that 
you know, it's the information age and kids have less information than ever. I've been, this is, this will be year 26 teaching for me. And I can say without question in the last five or six years, my students have, have come in with less information at their disposal from, you know, just from their brain, their walking around knowledge than at any point than I can think of. And it's purely yeah. because of what Matt just said, which is that, well, if I can Google it, why would I bother learning it? Learning it because you, your brain can't link new stuff to anything if there's nothing there to, to link to. So yes, the application that we're struggling to get even that high, forget about synthesis analysis or evaluation or whatever. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So therefore it's going into short-term memory. It never gets into long-term memory. Yeah. I'm, I'm watching my, like I said, I have my kindergarten daughter. I'm watching her right now learn math facts. Two plus two is four and two plus three is five and so on. And, you know, at one point people question, well, why, what's the point of, you know, memorizing that? If you don't know that two plus two is four, there's no way you're going to know that two to the fourth is 16. So you have to be able to have something to link to. And we just don't right now uh, see that kids. Well, and it, it also creates a situation where you're kind of sitting ducks, aren't they? Because, I mean, if you don't have the base of knowledge that you already know factually is there and you run into something on the Internet or something wherever, you don't have that to say, oh, this isn't correct. This is leading me in some direction that's not true. I mean, it's all new knowledge to you every time you you get it. So whatever it is that your source is, is, is likely true because you have no factual basis for disagreeing with it. Well, and, and what they see now, because they're, you know, they're all on Twitter or Instagram or wherever is a much lower level of discourse and a much higher level of, of sort of outrage. And that's become difficult to sift through. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that. Their conversations are a lot like their papers. I was going to say that one of the problems that we have is assessing kids' knowledge. If I were to, for example, ask a critical thinking question for homework and then to collect that homework and then grade it, what I would find are, if I gave 90 kids a question, I would find that 80 of them were virtually identical. It's not that they copied each other. It's that they all went on to some search engine and copy and pasted that question into the search engine and just <laughs> copy and pasted the first blurb that came up from Google and put it into this. This is a generation right. of copy and pasters. Right. So, so even the lack of critical thinking there, but, but they're, and you talk to a kid, they don't even consider it cheating, right? Like they find it preposterous that you, you'd even say, Oh, that's what I'm researching. And their discourse is very similar in that it's this really disconnected, set of ideas that somebody else proposed. Mm -hmm. it, it, when a kid says something, and I'm sure, you know, this isn't something new, but, mm. but when a kid in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s wanted to participate in, in, in some type of academic discourse, they'd have to read a lot. They'd have to understand a lot. And I'm sure they're stealing ideas that they were reading from the newspaper. You have to read paragraphs to get to some type of quotable line. Today, kids are getting that on Twitter and then there's all these quips, but there's no kind of underlying connecting thought. There's no kind of linear thought from one connection to the other. And right. I think it is something that's probably always existed in adolescence mm -hmm. trying to be adults, but it's something that's more profound now than I would say ever. So guys, going into that article again, and you had another myth, and that was that kids learn differently today. Right. And I'm sure a lot of parents feel that, that kids learn differently. You know, what are your comments on that? Well, we know that kids behave differently, but the way that the human brain does what we would call learning, that is not changing. We were both, just to 
to back up a little, we were both concerned about what was happening in our classrooms five or six years ago. And we ended up writing the book, but were we kind of our first break into what's going on with our kids was when we read a book called Mind Change by Susan Greenfield, who's an Oxford neuroscientist. And uh, she really lays this out beautifully, if, if anybody wants to, to check that out. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, neither of us are, are neurologists or neuroscientists, so we can't really comment with any expertise here. But the way the brain learns, that's the, one of the things that makes humans as successful as we've been. And that's not changing. But for sure, the environment, and this is kind of the thesis of mind change, the environment in which our brains are living is changing. And we know that brains change when the environment changes. Brains change. And so we know that our brains are changing and, the, and our brains are changing and, and they're changing for the worst. But the way that we're learning is staying the same and our brains are getting less able to hang on to stuff. Important parts of our, our brains like problem solving and, and retention of knowledge and social interaction and so on are being what they call pruning or they're being pruned. And so that, that makes it more difficult to learn. So the brain wants to learn a certain way and that's not, that's not going away. Again, the, the salespeople for ed, educational technology uh, gadgets and apps will tell you that, oh, the world is very different now and the world is digital and there's so many tools out there, and blah, blah, blah. So your kid's brain is different. But while the brains may be different, the, the way we learn is not. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, we're a 200,000 year old species and we're physically inferior to most animals. What has separated us and allows us to climb to the top of the food chain is simply learning. That's the only thing. And to say that in the last 200,000 years, the thing that's changed it is the mention of the iPad. I think it's preposterous. It's just, <laughs> it's so, it just, it just shows you how egotistical the ed tech company is that they just put so it's a, it's a faith, it's a religion. But the way that we encode and retrieve information, it has not changed. It's biological and it's what makes us humans. And there's no amount of technology that will change that. And I think that's the perfect place to leave this episode. And in the next episode, we're going to continue this important conversation with Joe and Matt. And we're going to discuss two more myths that are circulating out there today. Myth number three. When kids get a screen in front of them, they do amazing things. And myth number four, personalized learning is the future of education. It's going to be a great conversation. We hope you'll join us. And just as a reminder, you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, etc. So until the next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.